Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hello there, listeners. After over two years of recording and 80 plus episodes, I am elated to announce that Enduro Bearings has agreed to become a supporter of the Cycling in Alignment podcast. This is a double win for you, the audience. You have the opportunity to demonstrate your support of the show by making a purchase on the website cycling.endurobearings.com and you get to save some dollars while you trick out your whip. Use the code Colby Podcast to receive a 35% discount on any of Enduro Bearings excellent products. That's Colby Podcast, which is all lowercase and all one word. This includes the excellent XD15 ceramic bottom bracket, which is guaranteed for life. That means it may outlive you because, well, it's inanimate. Enduro also makes headsets, derailleur pulleys, as well as bearings for just about everything that rotates on a bicycle. So use your digits to make the keyboard mudras and head over to cycling.endurobearings.com and upgrade your favorite ride now. And remember, the proper number of bicycles is always N plus one, so think ahead. Thanks for listening. Hello there, space monkeys. Today's episode of Cycling Alignment is a cross pod with Derek Teal of Dialed Health. Derek and I met at Unbound this year, that's 2023, and we began to chit chat and decided we should have a conversation, a formal conversation that we record with digital recording devices, and then we should put it on the internet so that you all can listen to it. And that's exactly what happened. We get into a bit of the history of track racing. And I try to explain a little bit about what track racing is and what Madison is. And even though he asked me repeatedly what an exchange is, I failed to manage to make that, get that word out of my mouth. So in case you're wondering, a Madison exchange is when two riders change places in the race. But hopefully I gave some good info on that discussion. And we also talk about the nature of coaching, sort of some of the fundamentals of coaching and one primary error that I think many coaches make or... I guess I'll retract that statement. It's not really a primary error. It's really a starting point for understanding what coaching is about. And it allows evolution and growth in your process as a coach. I'll put it that way. And then I'll let you listen to the conversation and figure out what I'm talking about. I definitely enjoyed my conversation with Derek and I'm grateful he invited me on his pod. It was a really enjoyable discourse. We poked into a lot of nooks and crannies about coaching, about strength training, and so forth. And I will say that Derek and I have very congruent viewpoints on the need for cyclists and athletes to prepare themselves, not only on the bike, but also with a significant contribution of off the bike movements, exercises, mobility routines, etc. And if you want some cool, quick pointers, head to Derek's Instagram channel that is dialed health, you'll find it quite easily. And check out some of his content and his videos. He's got some really quick videos that give you good demonstrations of exercises that are quite simple to learn and effective. Uh, Many of them are bodyweight exercises. So go forth and check it out. But first, listen to this conversation. I hope you enjoy it. If you have questions for myself or Derek, you know where to find us on the gram. Fire the photons. And in the meantime, enjoy the conversation. As always, pedal consciously, pedal quickly and keep the rubber side down and the tea kettle up. That's what I got. Thanks for listening. All right, Colby, I want to pick up where we left off on our previous conversation because we were mid shakeout ride at Unbound and you were telling me about six day racing. This sounded like one of the wildest forms of racing I've ever heard of. So can you please remind me what is six day racing? And how grueling is it actually? Cool. Uh, yeah, six-day racing is a bit of a, a weird little um, cousin of road racing, right? It's even a cousin in the world of, of track cycling to a degree because people think of track cycling, they usually think of the big sprinters doing uh, really short efforts or maybe track standing. And then they think of people 
crashing <laughs> uh, if they're unfamiliar with track. So six day racing started actually in the US, you know, unlike most cycling, which is really European in origin, six day racing got its start in the US and, and um, six day racing or uh, two man team racing is also called Madison. And the reason it's called that is because it really got its start in Madison Square Garden in New York. And there used to be giant velodromes there that were all made out of wood. Like imagine the most gorgeous hardwood floor ever. And a velodrome, in case people don't know, is basically an oval banked track. It's like a running track, but for for bikes. So they they make everything on an angle, right? And originally, uh, sometime in the 1900s, somewhere on my shelf here, I've got a, a book that details the history of this. It's fascinating. And I don't know where that is now that I think about it. It might be at the, at the office, but they started off doing these races where people would literally just race for six days straight. One person would race for six days straight. And lo and behold, people started dying because that, as it turns out, is really not good for a human body. And they would just go on the track for six days, six nights, just 24 hours a day, just going as many miles as they could. And people started dying. So then they said, okay, we got to find a way to make this still, but it, it was quite popular back then. There were thousands of people that would come and watch this and it, they would bet on the riders. What big year thing. Was this? So I want to say like, I'm probably butchering the, the history a little bit cause I'm not super precise on it, but I would say early 1900s, like 1908 kind of thing. And certainly in the, in the teens and twenties of the 1900s. And so they turned it into a two man race. So then you could have one rider rest and the other one would tag in. And initially they just probably did like some sort of hand tag system. And then they started to use the, uh, like a baton system, but the riders would actually put this sort of handle device in their shorts and one rider would come and grab the handle and fling off the other rider. Right. And then that sort of changed over time. The, the handle stopped and it became a thing where uh, people developed this hand sling. So you would actually grab the, the arm of the rider who was in the race and the relief rider would drop down and the rider who was racing would come out next to him and he would, he would use his momentum and sling him into the race. And then they would switch positions. And the rider who was in the race would then go what's called on relief. And he or she would ride to the top of the track and ride really slow until the Peloton lapped the relief rider. And then when the Peloton laps, the relief rider comes down and they do another exchange. So for, for anyone in, listening, and I'm sorry to pause you there, Colby, but yeah, yeah. when I first saw this, it blew my mind because it seems like the last thing you would ever want to do on a track at those speeds. Mm -hmm. And so if you're listening to this and you've never seen that, what would you call it? The, the sling shot or the, yeah, yeah. what's yeah, that just, technique called? Um, you could go on YouTube and Google like six day racing or Madison racing. And you'll see Madison it. racing. You'll yeah. see, you'll see this transition take place and the force that they actually pull and launch each other with is mm -hmm. it, it seems like <laughs> it defies all logic on a bike. It's, it's incredibly progress, uh, pr uh, impressive. So mm. I just had to point that out, go and check it out if you're not familiar with it, but it's good to know too, that they slingshot themselves, like to get the rider behind ahead, but then the person who's on relief has to float to the top of the track. But when they're making that transition, what's, what's the lapped traffic like, you know, say you have three guys doing that sling all in a close proximity, right. And the guy's trying to float to the top. Is right. it just you bobbing avoid? and weaving through people? Yeah. So, well, okay. To um, expand the discussion, let's remember these these bikes have no brakes and you can't coast. It's a track bike. And it's not <laughs> right. a single speed. It's a fixed gear, right? So you, if the bike is moving, your feet are moving. And um, so that adds a little complexity to it. And I don't know if you've ever seen a really old John Cusack movie called Better Off Dead. You remember no. this movie? So no, uh, I'm no. dating myself here. But anyway, there's a scene where he's going to go skiing down this mountain and he's like freaking out because he thinks he's going to die. And he has to impress his girlfriend to ski down the mountain. And his buddy says, look, just go that way really fast. And if something gets in your way, turn, right? That's track. So you go around the riders in front of you, right? And so there's this nuanced system of etiquette and understanding where the riders know exactly where they have to go. And so when you're racing a six day on a 250 meter velodrome, in Copenhagen, for example, there were 18 teams. So that's 36 riders out there all doing changes and not running into each other, you know, most of the time. And when you get it dialed and you know the system, it's like a well-oiled machine and you go unbelievably fast. Like there are multiple times during my six-day career where I was, I was in awe of the speed of the Peloton I was in, just going, I can't believe how fast we're going right now. We're flying, just ripping around this track. I mean, you're going 60K an hour for like whole extended periods in tiny little gears. 
So what would those periods be? You, you know, like if you were doing yeah. a six day race and obviously you're racing for six days, you have one teammate or did it expand to more teammates in the future? Normally you have one teammate, unless something goes wrong, if you get sick or someone crashes or something, then they can, they can rearrange and combine teams so that, uh, they try to keep the race going as much as they can. Uh, and they, they, they have a system where can... they combine points, but normally you stick with the same partner for the six nights. Yeah. Yeah. This is unreal. So you, do you have a specified time period that you have to ride before transitioning or is that all your own strategy? So really how it works is, uh, every time the Peloton laps, the relief rider, you do a change. And in track on a 250 meter track with a normal size Peloton and typical race speeds that ends up happening about every 35 to 45 seconds. And the races are anywhere from 20 to 60 minutes long. So the average probably being a half an hour. So that means you're doing 60 changes in a 30 minute race about, you know, maybe a little less 50 changes, something like that. So it's a lot of changes. So it's so, sort of like 30 thirties is the way to think about it physiologically. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you can, and you know, I mean, if you've ever done a really good set of 30 thirties, like you really annihilate yourself and you start to be able to go deep on them, you can obliterate yourself in 30 seconds. And if you have just about complete rest in between, it's kind of like you're barely up for air at 27, 28. 29, you're like, okay, I can do this. And then you hit it again. Whack. That's Madison for a half hour straight. So you do it for a half hour and that's the normal Madison, but then mm -hmm. the six day component is mm -hmm. continuous. So how so, does that, how does that differ? Yeah. So how it works is there's a, there's a pro race. There are different races in the program, right? And it's really, it's a blend of racing and entertainment because you've got a crowd there who paid money to go to the indoor velodrome and buy tickets. So it's a bit different than your normal bike race where you can just walk out on the street and see, you know, Rigo ride by or whatever. Uh, you, you go to the velodrome and you buy tickets and you buy VIP tickets, you get a dinner and it's a thing. And there's a whole program of racing that happens. So the amateur racing would start at 6 p.m. It's an evening program. And uh, the pro racing would only start at 7 or 7.30. And the pro on the pro program, there might be five or six events for the evening, some shorter events and some longer events. And the events can have different formats, but they're usually two Madisons or otherwise known as chases. Chase and Madison are kind of um, interchangeable terms in six day world. And so you might have two Madisons. One might be 20 minutes long and one might be 30 minutes long. And then you have some other smaller races in slightly different formats, including Derny racing, points racing, um, something they call, uh, it's, I forget what they call it now. It's like a giant sprint basically, but it's like 15 laps of fluff first and then a, and then a big sprint uh super sprint they call it something like that and, but in between those races so that the pros can have a break they might do other things they might have uh someone come and sing a song like on the stage they might have in some of the german six days they have a laser show with like techno music in some of the other shows they might have a comedy routine and in some of the other six days they might have sprint racers like with track sprinters bigger racers come and just do two uh you know uh two riders racing against each other for four laps kind of thing or they might have a Kieran race, which is where eight riders follow the motor for about six or eight laps. And then the motor winds them up and then peels off and lets them go and do battle for two laps on their own. And so then you get this sort of staggered program. There's this constant rotating sort of uh, revolving door of entertainment to please the crowd. And the racing can go quite late in the evening. It gets spaced out. Uh, you end up racing about three hours of ride time for the pros per night. So it adds up quite a bit. And it's all pretty much full gas, fast racing. So at the end of six nights, you are thoroughly smoked. And in Zurich, for example, the racing program will go until three or 4 a.m. sometimes quite late in the morning. Okay, so, so this, this does answer my question yeah. as well. It is not six days continuous. It's six nights in a row, almost like a stage race. They, they call the it a six day. Racing. Yeah, they call it a six day. It really should be called a six night. <laughs> yes, <laughs> correct. Okay, yeah, during the day, you're, you're head, sleeping and recovering. Okay. In my head, I, I envision this never ending for six days, but also <laughs> I, and, cause then you say, Oh my gosh, people were dying from it. But it's crazy to think that if you were dying, it's because it's such high intensity for the six days in a row. Correct. Yeah. Like, and, and I, and again, all, all the poor recovery a uh, hundred years ago, the bikes, mm -hmm. the equipment and all the other dangers that come along with it. So, okay. That actually clears it up because I literally thought this was nonstop for six days and I was amazed that I hadn't heard of it up until this point. So that, that makes a lot more right. sense. Yep. There you go. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating a little universe. It's kind of a, a very, there's still a lot of very old school sort of traditions of European cycling that are 
ensconced in that arm of the sport or that corner of the sport, we'll say. It's slowly changing and evolving and dying, just like kind of everything is that's old school now in a mm. way. But yeah. It's a, well, it's, it's a crazy cool to see universe. more about the track disciplines and how interwoven it is into uh, Olympic sport, which is really cool. And I did recently find out that you had the hour track record in the U.S. for a while. Mm-hmm. And I saw an amazing photo of you riding this Lotus track bike, just looking absolute greased up and ripped uh, <laughs> coming around the track. It was it was rad. And so Thanks. would you say that that hour effort was maybe the hardest hour you've ever had on the bike? Mm, no, I wouldn't. Uh, that was way back in 1995. I did the U S hour record. So full disclaimer, like a long time ago. And, uh, and that was, um, it, it was a hard, it was certainly a very hard hour, but you know, I'll say this gets into the, the science of pain a little bit, right? I had a conversation, a good conversation with my athletes just the other day about this pain is a sensation that is created in the brain, right? I mean, I can push this pen into my arm and do it with a pressure of whatever, two pounds, and it doesn't hurt. But if I smash myself with it and really try to stab my puncture my arm with it, then I get the sensation of pain. But the, the pain isn't a thing that's happening here. It's an interpretation of pressure by the brain, right? So during the hour record, I knew I was ahead of pace because of the splits I was being called and the pacing that we had calculated. So when you know you're about to set a national record, you can put yourself through a lot of pain and it doesn't seem that hard because you're ahead, right? It's like a victory lap. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. I mean, it was still an intense effort and I still had many weird experiences and went through a lot of deep um, physical suffering. And I could tell I was at a very high level, but I've suffered a lot more for an hour on a bike in other occasions, for sure. For sure. Like down this year in the first... (laughs) 14 miles, maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe the last 14 miles when I was solo. Um, yeah. Cause I did about the last hour of that race, maybe hour and a half by myself. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. In a way, but I also knew I was ahead in that race too. So it was suffering. It was more like racing to not get caught, which is very mm. different. It's a very different perspective than racing when you know you've been dropped or you feel like your performance has been subpar, especially if you had your a preconceived notion about a race, like I'm going to beat that person or I'm going to be top 10. And then you find yourself racing for 20th. That's a very different Mm -hmm. mentality than I'm hoping I'll podium and now I'm winning. Right. Or perhaps I have no expectations about this race whatsoever. I'm just here to go fast. And then now you find yourself doing really well. It's a very different mentality. Right. That's a really good point. And congrats on winning the hundred mile in your age group. I saw that and, uh, in front of Yuri too, which is insane because he's a past unbound winner um, and dialed fan member. I'd like to point out Yuri Hoswald, the man. And so when was it that you made the transition from your professional cycling career to coaching? Was it, was it at the end of what it says on your Wikipedia, which is <laughs> like 2014 of your ending cycling? No. Or did you kind of win no, no. the worlds for a while yeah. before that? Yeah, yeah. I I actually started my coaching career sort of informally around 2003, 2002. I began to coach some riders. People asked me to just help them out with programs like a lot of coaches do. You know, it's like, hey, man, I want you to tell me what to do. I want to pay you. And it's like, well, I'm, I don't know what I'm doing here. And they're like, yeah, but it, you know enough to help me. So let me give you 50 bucks a month or whatever. And it's like, all right, cool. Well, um, they're paying for that bro science. <laughs> totally. And so that, <laughs> yeah. that started then. My first official job as a coach was in 2005. I actually worked for USA Cycling for a year and a half as the track endurance coach. And that was an interesting experience. Um, I learned a ton about myself and about coaching and about USA Cycling and coaching at the world level. So it was really valuable. And then I went back to racing full-time for a period after that. And then uh, dabbled in some other coaching, different coaching positions since then, for sure. Do you so. feel like when you dove into the coaching world that you were starting to apply what you're learning and did it help your own cycling at that point? Absolutely. Yeah. I I have a belief that as coaches, I'll say that we can really only teach someone a subject if we've commanded it or mastered it, which isn't to say we're the world champion at it. But we've seen it from, we'll say, many angles and we've had many lessons, right? Where we lessons are places where we make mistakes (laughs) and they are, um, opportunities for learning. Right. 
So you, I mean, let's think about it for a minute. Like how many lessons did you learn in the race you won where you kicked everybody's ass? Like, okay, yeah, you might have these moments where you're like, yeah, I nailed this and I nailed that. But when you get totally smoked or get your doors blown off, it's like, whoo, back to the drawing board. Like, what am I missing? Right. Mm -hmm. Why did I get smoked on that hill? Why did I get dumped in that tailwind section? Why did I get, you know, why did I bonk at mile 84? It's like, all right, I have to re-examine my nutrition. I really need to come back to the drawing board and understand more about myself and my own racing strategy or my own training. What am I missing in my arsenal of, of weaponry? What did I bring to the line that wasn't what, how was I not prepared for this event? So those types of lessons are what really help me um, think about coaching riders who come to me with, from different perspectives. And I'll say that I had this discussion actually last night with uh, Jonathan Fodders. We went to dinner and we were talking about the fact that we've witnessed certain coaches make what I think is probably the most fundamental mistake you could make as a coach. And that mistake is something that we all make initially. What do we do? How, how do we coach anyone? Someone comes to you and they say, oh, I want to win this race. Help me out. And what you do is you refer to your own experience. You say, well, when I did that type of race, whatever they're time climbing, whatever they're training for a, a hill climb or a time trial, I did X, Y, and Z. And those made me, that gave me my best performance in that type of race. So the first thing you do is hand them the same thing. Mm -hmm. That's human nature because mm -hmm. you go with what you know, right? But as it turns out, that person most likely is completely different than you right? They have a different fiber type or the different metabolism or the training different ways or they respond to load in different ways and they have a different workload and they're a different point in their lives and blah, 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 a thousand other details that make them not you and make them them. And so you give them your training program and maybe it kind of works, but it probably really doesn't. And then you go, hmm, uh, why didn't that work? Okay. And then if you're smart, you start to figure that out. Like, okay, this person's different than me. Now I have to understand them. I have to really know the athlete and I have to take all these training tools that I have and look at them without bias and say, selectively take these tools, whether that tool is VO2 efforts or, you know, whatever you want to call it, maximal aerobic power or threshold or strength work or more core or focus on nutrition or focus on sleep. And I have to offer that to them and say, Hey, I think this is what's going to move the dial for you. And it's trial and error to a degree because mm -hmm. you're just looking at them and you're using... So the more tools you've experienced and the more tools you have a deep understanding of, the bigger your arsenal is, the more and the and the cleaner your doorstep is in the sense that the more open you are to just selecting tools without bias, right? Without preconceived ideas, just going honestly asking like I see that athlete for who they are, what do they need? Now what do I have that can offer them? Take the tool and offer Take the tool and offer, take the tool and offer. And sometimes you see something, you go, ooh, this athlete needs detailed blood work analysis. And I don't know anything about that. So then you have to check the ego at the door. You can't just go mm -hmm. be Dr. Google, right? You got to be like, um, hey, Kevin Sprouse, I've got an athlete who's got really complex blood work problems. Can you help me out with this, please? Or you refer out is what I'm saying, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think what you just said is the perfect example of a very successful athlete who maybe starts coaching and is like, here's what I did and just copy and paste that to everybody. Here's what I did. Here's what I did. Here's what I did versus yeah. a very experienced coach who thinks, Oh, this is what you should do. And it doesn't come from that preconceived bias. And of course you have the experience of what you've been through yourself, but you have all the experience of the results from your clients over the years and that diversity in the, the client, and that's one mm -hmm. thing I actually loved about training in the general health and fitness space is because, you know, I had clients that are 400 pounds. I have, uh, you know, people in their forties who have never done a push up, And at yeah. the same time, I have some of the highest level athletes in the world in their given discipline. And so when you work with both of those people in the same day, it really makes you understand that <laughs> there is not there, there is not necessarily one specific formula. There's just like these underlying foundations you have to build from. And yeah. I, I know that you're really good about that. In fact, you have been one of my favorite coaches to listen to and to learn from, from your uh, podcast through EF Coaching, through your personal podcast, because you regularly touch on the importance for improving your general health and well-being as the foundation for your performance as like this uh, like real true I guess, foundational bottom-up approach opposed to just thinking about peak performance all the time or mm. building this like shallow house or, or excuse me, this uh, fragile 
what would you what would you call it? It's building a mm-hmm. house on a on a on a uh, rock. I need my biblical term right now. Anyways, you know <laughs> what I'm talking about. <clears throat> so let's let's dive into that a little bit. When you have someone that comes to you and says like, "Hey, I." I want to go faster. So I want to improve my FTP. Mm. What's your follow-up to question to that? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so I would say I would offer that there is a lot of fixation on FTP in particular. That's a perfect um, metric to kind of beat up on for a minute, right? People are really, really into it. They're really uh, focused on it, especially now people are riding indoors and they're seeing Zwift and what does Zwift show you? It shows you watts per kilo. Mm-hmm. So people, so the 50,000 foot view to solve that equation is like make more Watts. Well, how do we make more Watts? You know, superficially we do more threshold work because that's, but this is, this is simplistic thinking. This is, um, to be honest, it's very sophomore thinking, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because you can't always apply a direct load in training and expect a direct result. You can at moments, but as you pointed out before, you have to build the foundation first of the house. In order to build a really tall skyscraper, we have to have a big wide foundation, right? Metaphorically speaking. And so you can superficially say, I want to raise my threshold, I'm going to do more threshold, or I want to reduce my kilos. So I'm Mm -hmm. going to just eat less, (laughs) right? And this is, of course, also a 50,000 foot view of weight. Like it's not considering body composition at all. The problem is people tend to equate less weight with higher performance. But of course, that's not true because if you make certain dietary choices and you lose muscle mass and your adipose tissue, your fat mass either stays the same or goes up, you got slower, not faster, Mm. right? So, but that's easy to, that can easily happen if people are just really focused on overall weight as a metric, as a generic metric without looking at it with any nuance. Of course, then there's the issue of water weight gain and loss, which you know, you can have a three, four kilogram weight swing in a 48 hour period with an endurance athlete in the summer, easily mm-hmm. training and racing in hot, really hot weather and really exhausting themselves. And you know, this to store glycogen requires water, water. That's so, why they call it carbohydrate people. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. So if you're super, super light on the line, that's not always a good thing. It can also mean you got no fuel in the tank, right? Or another way to think about that is when you are fueled for your race, you're going to be heavy that morning. You're going to be heavy, right? If the tank is full. So um, I would offer that people who are focused on FTP, um, they're looking at one particular aspect that is a predictor of race outcome. And that may or may not be the rate limiting factor for their performance. But my job as a coach is to always zoom out and look at what the rate limiting factor is. And I think one of the things that I perhaps do sometimes better than many coaches, but also it can be a weakness of mine is I zoom out so much and I look Mm. for rate limiting factors from such a large lens that sometimes my conclusion is that it actually, the, the athlete's biggest rate limiting factor has nothing to do with how we're training them. That is to say, it's not going to matter if we improve their power for five minutes. It's not their max mean max power for five minutes or their repeatability for four by five. It's not going to matter if we improve their threshold. It's not going to matter if we improve their fat max. It's not going to matter if we improve the number of KJs that can burn in one day. None of those things matter. What matters is that they're actually miserable in their job and they hate their life and they're super stressed about it. And this has nothing to do with coaching in the physiological sense or the power meter sense Mm -hmm. or the HRV sense. And some coaches won't like this answer at all because they're going to be like, dude, I'm not a psychologist. Mm -hmm. I have bad news for you. You actually are a psychologist because- Humans are biosocial creatures, right? They're biopsychological psychological and social creatures. And this machine, as we call it, is on the one hand, it is biomechanical. We like to think of it in the weight room as a series of pulleys and levers. But on the other hand, it is not simply, um, I don't have my bike in the background to show. It's not a bike where you change gears and leverage changes because this machine runs off electrical potential and drive which is formed by intent, right? It's occupied mm. by a soul. We are occupied, this machine, this biological spacesuit, to use a bit of a weird term, it's occupied <laughs> by a soul which has desire, it has love, it has passion, right? And souls come to this world to do the things that we do. And most of us are athletes. So we have this passion to climb mountains fast or 
um, be competitive with other souls, right? And do all those things. And that means we have intent, focus. And when we have intent and focus, then things come together and they coalesce into a direction. But when people have intent and they want to go fast on the bike and they want to improve their FTP, but other parts of their lives are not oriented into that focus. And I'm not saying you have to be, I want to be clear. I'm not making a case that whatever, um, you know, your 48 year old mammal athlete who wants to, you know, compete in unbound has to be this monk like or monastic person who focuses every moment of his life towards unbound. That's not what I'm saying, Mm -hmm. but we do have to have a holistic basis of health and we have to have some focus that brings people together into not just being fast on the bike, but being a healthy human because athletic performance is built on the foundation of holistic health. Right. That is so well said. And I love that you point out the real intent because even with someone saying, I want to improve my FTP, you'd have to really also ask why. And if their assumption is to go faster, then the next thing is, well, let's look at the big picture and think of all these other ways to get faster. Like what is the true intent behind you wanting to get FTP, a raised FTP? Is that because you think that's the best way for you to get faster? Right. But there's so many other ways. And do you mind actually going into some of those other ways that someone uh, can be faster? Yeah. Well, okay. So let's, let's pick apart FTP a little bit and then we can use it to contrast examples. Um, I mean, first we have to look realistically. So if we take the classic definition of a field test for FTP, functional threshold power, it's 20 minutes and we multiply it by 95%, right? And we do that to take out the glycolytic component or contribution to that effort. We assume that there's some sort of faking that's happening with a glycolytic energy system and that inflates the number for 20 minutes. How many races are there where you're actually on the pedal full gas for 20 minutes straight? Not actually that many. We have a handful of TTs in the U.S. nationwide that are about 20 minutes long. Mm -hmm. Maybe a couple hill climbs that are about a 20-minute hill climb is pretty short. We have probably two here in Colorado that are close enough to where we could call it. We could go say like, go rip a hill climb and we'll see what happens. And we might be able to use that as an FTP number. But even in that case, one of them is called Lookout Mountain. I think the record is something in the high 18s or 17s or something like that. So most people, most average riders are doing, you know, low 20s. Because you don't just go to the front at the start of the hill climb and rip it the whole way up. Of course, people kind of hide their cards and they wait for someone else to surge and and the race is stochastic. And so how practical, I understand what we're trying to do. We're trying to model training zones so that we can then prescribe training load. That's the idea behind FTP. But when you think about how practically applicable a 20-minute steady, hard, really hard maximal effort is to real world racing, it's... I was nowhere close to my 20 minute FTP and unbound ever. Like, oh dude, same. You know, you look at yeah. the power graph and it's like this all day long. It's very stochastic. That's real world racing. Even though your heart rate is pinned for hours and hours at that race because you're, or could be, you know, depending on whether we're talking about the walking section or not, right. For this, or the mud clearing. I don't know how you're, <laughs> I don't know how that affects your heart rate. So like, okay. So it's not that applicable. I think we can agree on that. Hopefully people understand that concept. And then we still be holding on to this idea that you go up a big, long climb at the end of a five hour race and that's your FTP. But I would offer that most amateurs are not at their functional threshold power after four hours of racing. If you've got a big, long climb, it takes a very, very fit athlete to actually hit threshold at that point and a ridiculous amount of calories in the form of sugar. And people are starting to catch on to that. But so what other ways might an athlete be limited in terms of physiological universe, right? Uh, they might be limited in terms of their ability to process and generate lactate, right? Pro- both process, generate and process. So remember the glycolytic energy system consumes sugar, right? And it produces lactate. It's a necessary byproduct, mandatory and natural byproduct of glycolytic metabolism. So your lactate levels go up. What does aerobic metabolism consume? It consumes some sugar, some fat, some air, right? Some oxygen and lactate. So there's this beautiful synergy when we have an athlete who's got a really well-trained aerobic base, and then they add a sprinkling of glycolytic efforts, that really hard glycolytic effort produces, you might think of it as like a wave of lactate that hits your bloodstream, right? There's always a time delay on that because metabolism in this respect takes time. And then your aerobic metabolism consumes that lactate and the levels go back down. 
So that's why you have a really well-trained athlete who can ride at like hard tempo or even threshold. And then they can go whack for 30 seconds and accelerate and explode. And then they settle right back into threshold and they're pinned, but the lactate levels will slowly go down as their aerobic metabolism consumes that lactate and uses it for fuel. Mm. Isn't that interesting? I love that's a really cool explanation. It's like you're you're breaking down the science, but from a very tangible uh, Mm. point of view. I I, that was an awesome explanation. Thanks for that. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, and so you're basically saying that FTP tests they are necessary for you to build your training zones, but the truth is that just improving your (laughs) FTP through the the test itself doesn't mean that you are necessarily getting faster because it's not as applicable to your riding itself. It's like Mm. you know, that's a hard, that's a hard statement to make. It depends on the athlete and what their limits are. Right. So if we have an athlete who, okay, let's take a couple of hypotheticals to help explain this. Yeah. I used to coach some athletes who uh, lived in Austin. And if you coach anyone who lives in Austin, you know, a staple of their local racing is this criterium series called the driveway. It's like, I think it's every Thursday night. And it literally runs from like February until December, almost like almost the whole freaking year. And everybody just does, goes and does it. And they let you trickle into other categories. So like if you're racing the twos, you could start at the threes and just ride at the back all night and you could coach the juniors and ride with them. And then you could follow the masters. So you end up with like three hours of criteriums. So you add that into your week. So what is that? That's a whole bunch of stochastic, like it's a criterium, you know, it's like a big hit and then coasting through corners and a big hit and coasting and boom, 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 boom. So it's the opposite of any steady threshold effort. So we have riders who do these types of training races or weekly crits. And then they do crits on the weekend and they get months and months of that type of work. And so their system gets very good at handling short bursts. And, and if they have, if they're complementing that with aerobic training and their base is good, or they, maybe they did a big early season base of steady riding, then they might be pretty well rounded in terms of fitness. However, then they get in a road race and they're in a situation where they end up in a solo breakaway with 40 K to go, like a long way to go to the line. And suddenly they can't, maintain that steady power that they do need. Mm. Right. And it's like, Ooh, okay. And their system just collapses because they can't keep constant muscle tension on the pedals and metabolically, they can't handle that constant lactate load because they're never in that situation where they've had to deal with that. They've only been doing very, we'll say bursty training and racing loads for months and months. So that type of athlete, if we added some threshold work in their, in their training, it might actually complement the stochastic group oriented crit surgy racing and training that they get all the time. So we always have to interpret. It's like, there are all these different components to physiology, right? There's the steady state, there's high torque, there's high cadence. They're just different characteristics. There's, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and then there's like different, different nuances to physiology. And so what we have to do is sort of understand how the athlete gravitates in their natural environment. Like, on the front range here, we have a certain type of terrain. So it it tends to build certain types of riders. And then contrast that with someone who lives in upstate New York, where they've got a lot of rolling hills. We have a lot of really long climbs. We have like hour long climbs, hour and a half long climbs, but not a lot of rolling terrain. But someone who comes from upstate New York might be in this really rolling terrain environment. They have no climb over six minutes long. I don't know if that's Mm -hmm. super true, but I'm just making up hypothetical examples. So you have to understand the athlete's native environment and how they train. And then we add the human factor. The human factor is to, you know, use a gym analogy. Um, probably most of your athletes, if you, if you walked into a gym and you didn't know them at all, and you were like, all right, I want to see what you're going to do. There's a squat rack. There's a hex bar. Pick one. What are they going to do? They're going to pick the one that they're best at 99% of the time, right? Because they want to show off to their new coach. So if they're an athlete who's probably more quad dominant and probably, so then they like squats, they're going to go to the squat rack and be like, Hey Derek, check this out. Wham, wham, wham. You're going to be like, cool. But if they're more hip dominant and they try to turn all their squats into a deadlift, they're going to walk to the hex bar and be like, Hey Derek, check this out. So what I'm saying is we look at the athlete's local terrain and then we look at what they like to do. And what they like to do is probably what they're good at. Mm -hmm. So that tells us a lot about an athlete, right? Yeah. And there's an old saying that one of my mentors, Paul Check, uses all the time. If you can't, you must. So if you're Mr. Threshold or Mrs. Threshold and you're always doing 20 and 30 minute efforts and all you want to do is smash yourself in zone four all the time or whatever zone, whatever number you apply to it, depending on what system you're in, 
then you might need some shorter stuff. You might need some change in pace. You might need some over-unders or some tempo with seated surges. They might really benefit your training and, and begin to wake up your physiology in a way that's not been challenged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's good to, to identify that as a coach and see that people might just be putting too much into the thing that they're already good at and avoiding those weaknesses. And that's probably one of the most valuable reasons to have a coach is for them to point that out to the actual athlete itself. And it's funny, but I've noticed even with my own, let's just say road rides, for example, um, I do focus on average speed a lot. If I'm going to go out and just smash myself, we have a lot Mm -hmm. of rolling terrain in my area and I've gotten faster over the last year. And there has been slight power increase, but I think the reason that my average speed has continued to come up, it could be some familiar familiarity with the terrain, but I have gotten like a lower body position on the bike. I have mm. basically doubled the carb intake on my rides. I mm. have gotten better at shifting and some of that technique on the bike as well. And so that is one thing I've actually learned from you and what you guys are talking about over at EF coaching is all these other dynamics that play into the effect as well. So at what point do you take your eyes off of the data of the athlete and maybe just watch them on the bike? I mean, I know that you do this with bike fits. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm sure that's probably the most obvious area. Like, Mm -hmm. do do you, so sorry to even just answer that question (laughs) for you, but it's like, okay, so you do bike fits And then is that the point where you say, oh my gosh, like this guy uh, can't get arrow because he's so inflexible or, oh, this person just doesn't even eat carbs while they ride. Like, like how do you identify those traits that are a little bit less data backed and more Mm -hmm. so with your own coaching eye? Right. Great question. So, I mean, if you're riding with a rider locally, you can start to piece that together. But if you're not, as is frequently the case, right? We coach a lot of our clients are in different parts of the world. So you have to solve that equation and really comes down to, I would say that the first rule of being an athlete is to know yourself, right? It's to intimately know yourself, like know your own limits, know your, know your own weaknesses, know the things you have preferences for, preference, preferences for, and then correspondingly challenge the things that you suck at, right? That's, that's true mastery, self-mastery. You take that same concept and apply it to your client. You have to know them. So when I'm working with a client, I, I am always looking at their feedback and I'm teasing feedback out of them from workouts. And you just have to dig always a layer deeper. So it's like, oh, I felt terrible today. You know, my legs were super heavy or someone tried to tie a tree stump to my bike. I was just dragging all day. Couldn't go anywhere. Okay. Tell me, tell me more. What's going on? How'd you sleep last night? So I'm always coming back to fundamentals, you mm-hmm. know, sleeping, uh, hydration levels, eating, right? Uh, thinking, right? How, what's going on in their head, their movement practice. So like making sure that I'm on top of the training and that it's really what they need. And also that there aren't any surprises in there. Like, oh yeah, I didn't tell you I got a gym membership. Oh yeah, I lifted three times this week. Oh, really? <laughs> no, you didn't tell me that. Yeah. Or you know, whatever. My girlfriend and I decided to do this yoga class over the weekend and we did an hour and a half of yoga, hot yoga on Saturday and Sunday after my ride. And, you know, Tuesday, go figure I'm super sore and crushed. Okay. And then breathing. These are the, these are the six foundational principles as taught by Paul check. And I've found that they, these six principles will, if I drill into them, I can usually figure out what's going on with a client. Right. And so if they have a bad day or a couple bad days, you, you start look, noticing that in their comments, you notice it in their data, and then you notice in their comments, it's not just a bad day, a one-off, but like a trend. And you're going, okay, tell me what's going on. And they're like, oh, I've been meaning to talk to you about this, you know, but I read this article and decided to only eat broccoli. What do you <laughs> yeah. think about the all broccoli diet? You know, and you're like, okay, I'm so glad you asked me that. Let's unpack that, <laughs> right? So then you get to really quickly figure out what those things are. Sometimes it's harder when you're working with a client remotely because they may be a disaster going through every corner, overbreaking mm-hmm. or have really poor technique. And so you have to tease that out of them in their post-race comments or their group ride comments. Like, where are you mm-hmm. getting dropped? What's happening there? Are you, are you getting gapped in the corner? Are you going in the corner on the person's wheel and coming out four lengths off every time? And then eventually you, the elastic snaps. 
So then we have to talk to them about cornering techniques. So, but it really comes down to the same principle, which is like just drilling in, drilling in, drilling in, like keep digging, keep finding under the layers of information until you get to the core of what we're trying to, what the rate limiting factor is. And it may be that they're overinflating their tires. It can be sometimes it can be really simple things. Uh, it can be that they're and that, or they have some crazy idea about what cornering technique is. And so you unpack that, right? Oh but yeah. I'm drilling your in example. Your example of the all broccoli diet, it sounds like hyperbole, but I know that you're not exaggerating very much. I've gotten feedback from people like that where they do something so extreme and they, I don't know if they don't tell you because they're almost worried about what you'll think or they know it's mm. a bad idea or I don't know what it is, but I've had some wild, uh, yeah. I've had clients do wild things like that in the past. And I'm like, whoa, 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 why, like, why are you doing that? Like, we're making progress. Like, everything is good. And yeah. I know it comes down to feeling impatient, which I understand because a lot of times people start when they're, you know, they were ready six months ago to get to the, to get the results. But a lot of times when you take these drastic measures, especially without coaching support, you can just slow yourself down because you're, you, again, you do the all broccoli diet, you get no calories and you wreck yep. yourself for two weeks. And then you have a full month where you're, you didn't make any progress. And maybe you realized you learned the lesson of, oh, I shouldn't do that crazy extreme thing without talking to my coach, but that's, that's it. So I, I bring that up because that example is not that extreme actually. And I've mm. seen it play out and I would encourage anybody to really focus on taking one step at a time because there's all these details and there's all these, these nuances to training, but it's not to try and do it all at once. It's to pick one thing and to make it last. You know what I mean? To implement it and make it last so that you don't have to go back over and return over that stone uh, or mm. years and years can go by before you do. And so I, I love that you do have that very macro view, like you mentioned, like maybe even almost to a fault, but I think it just comes with all the experience you've had over the years. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's hard for me. Like, Ultimately, as coaches, uh, I know it's a tricky and perhaps self-serving and also um, it's a bit of a fool's errand for us to evaluate our own coaching, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but it's hard for people to evaluate their own training too. Like It's almost like you, you need the coach for your own coach coaching. And like what you said about, oh, you need to know what you're not good at. And oftentimes, mm -hmm. you almost need to approach people like, tell me what I don't even know about myself. You know, like yeah. this is one thing of me coming into the endurance side of cycling where I think I have it figured out for a week or two. And then I hang out with someone like you, or I hang out with a legit pro and, you know, we had Nielsen palace on the podcast and he's actually from my hometown. So I've done a few rides with him, and it's like, you go and you're with these guys and you're like, Oh, <laughs> you're like, I didn't even know about that. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? It's like, mm -hmm. that's the kind of influence you need, but it takes a very humble person to say, like, come here and tell me what I suck at. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 But, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear, as the saying goes, right? So if Ooh, you have those open good. eyes, right? You have those open yeah. eyes, you're, you're waiting for the person to teach you, then, then they'll be there. So it's a good place to be in, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That, that was such a perfect follow-up answer. So let me get more specific with my questions as well. I want to know about the finding the perfect saddle because you do bike mm. fitting and I know you spent a lot of time looking in, well, not only ha handlebars, uh, because I've seen you've created your own handlebar, but, uh, also with the saddles itself. So let's talk about how someone would find the perfect saddle. Yeah. Great question. Uh, that one's challenging, right? Because what most people do is they get a bike and it has a saddle on it. And the decision of whether to change saddles or keep the saddle depends on how much of a hatchet it is. <laughs> um, if it's really bad, if it's like sitting on a fence post, then people will go to the bike shop and say, I need something else. And then they're sort of at the mercy of typically a bike shop employee, which, you know, I'm not bagging on any bike shop employees. Like their job is to sell bikes, not to find the best saddle for an athlete. So we have to understand the limits of that system. And if a bike shop only carries one brand of saddle, then magically that's going to be the brand that they recommend. Uh, and there can be some bias in that selection process, right? For my perfect world, we want athletes to be exposed to many different types of saddles. It's the same advice I give with shoes. You know, if you're looking for shoes, go to the, go to a shop with a big selection of shoes and say, hi, 
My name is Lori. I'd like you to give me every shoe you have in a size 41 and leave me alone for 45 minutes. <laughs> and you try them all on back to back, right? And that back to back um, sensation or that experience of all those different shoes in a row will help you discern very quickly what works and what doesn't. Like, oh, the heel's too loose on this one. The bow is too loose on this one or the bow is not in the right place. And it's the same thing with saddles. When we try saddles back to back, we, we, uh, just as you said a moment ago, you, sometimes you don't know what you don't know. So I have athletes who come in and I ask them on a one to 10, how is your saddle now? And sometimes they'll say, oh, it's a six or a seven. And it's usually the saddle that came with the bike, or often it's one, one step removed from that. Like they, they didn't like the saddle that came with the bike. They tried one other. And the one that they tried was better than the one on the bike. So therefore it's a, it's an eight or a nine maybe, but until you've tried a spectrum of saddles in particular, we have to understand a little bit about how saddles are designed and how they're constructed and the shapes and how they interact with the pelvis. And a lot of saddles are really in one area of that spectrum, right? So we can have saddles that are flatter and more curved and with it, with a cutout and without a cutout and get a more padded and less padded. Those are some of the, some of the variables that are intermixing. And a lot of saddles are very focused in the cycling world around one area. And this is because I'm going to beat up on cycling for a minute and particular equipment manufacturers. Um, cycling is a sport that's quite confused. It really lost its way in terms of the relationship of form versus function many years ago. Like basketball shorts look stupid and everyone agrees with that. But the only reason that they might look cool is because Michael Jordan is amazing. Right. But nobody thinks basketball short, like there's no aesthetic function to them. They're 100% function only. Right. They're, sorry. There's no aesthetic form to them. They're no, there's no art in a basketball. Short. It's like cheap nylon and it's loose and flowy and it has an elastic band and that's, and then it has your colors on yeah. it. whatever team you're playing. For. That's it. But cycling is special. We have all this stuff. That's all arrow and carbon and swoopy and the shoes have to look like dress shoes. Highway cycling shoes have to look like dress shoes. This makes no sense whatsoever. Why does a saddle have to have this specific sort of arrow missile, almost borderline phallic shape? Like just because it's been that way since the dawn of time, that's basically the answer. And it <laughs> looks right. And, and this is people have this happen. They, they get confused. And even at the expense of their own performance at times, I've had riders come to me and say, well, I'm not trying that saddle because it's really ugly. And I'm like, dude, what's wrong with you? Like, you, you, you got things backwards. I'm going to, I don't often tell people how screwed up their minds are, but I'll tell you, this is not correct. That's how I'll say it because your priorities are out of whack. Performance should mm -hmm. always be the first concern, especially when you're talking about the health of your prostate, right? Or your undercarriage mm -hmm. guy or gal, it doesn't matter. Like let's be real. We're sitting on or very near our genitals when we're riding our bikes. <laughs> Like you want things to be as optimal as possible. Like do you want your genitals <laughs> yeah. to work the rest of your life. Yes. Raise your hand if it's yes. Okay, cool. So let's pick a saddle that it cooperates with that whole system and this whole mess that we made, this artificial sport, this Victorian contraption that we all fell in love with. Let's try to optimize that a bit. So try lots of saddles. Find a local test program if you can. Some shops have them and they'll let you try saddle for a week. And you give them your credit card for a $20 deposit, or I don't know how it works. Depends on the shop. Um, maybe you just give me your driver's license. Try saddles. See how it works. Play with the, with the fit. Try different saddles that are more curved, less curved, no cutout, little cutout, big cutout. A channel is like a cutout trying to be a cutout. It's sort of like a baby cutout. So just go straight for the cutout and avoid the channels, in my opinion. Um, Do you think that doing the, the sit bone measurement is like the first step in the process? And then from there no. you go to all these no. details because yeah. I've always just picked a saddle based off of sit bone measurement. Oh, I find my width. Boom. Done. Yeah. So, okay. Great question. So the sit bone measurement is really the distance between the ischial tuberosities, right? And these are just little prominences on the underside of your pelvis, right? So think of the bones, the ischium, which is the underside of your pelvis. Think of them like rocking chair feet. So they're kind of wide in the back. And they're kind of curved gently, and then they're a little bit narrower in the front, right? And that's why a saddle sort of triangular shape because it kind of matches that curve. And they have two little bumps in the backside. When you sit very vertically, like if you're sitting on a bar stool and you're sitting with a very vertical torso, your mm -hmm. those ischial tuberosities will push into the wood, and that's what they're measuring. Now, question: Is that how you sit on a bike? That's a great question, actually, or a great point, because I have done the test where you do sit completely upright. Right. 
So is it an indication of what could fit? Yes. Is it a 50,000 foot view and there are 12 other things we need to consider? Yes. Or maybe 20. Because we also have to consider the relative angle of those rocking chair feet. Are they closer to parallel or are they more really narrow in the front and really wide in the back? And human pelvises have, just like every part of a human, a massive amount of individual variation. Like this is the rule that we need to all remember about everything, training, bike fit, diet, everything, bio-individuality rules, everything, right? So to use the analogy in diet, one person's rocket fuel is another person's kryptonite, Hmm. right? This is true of everything. So one person's perfect saddle might be an absolute hatchet to someone else and vice versa. So this is the problem with a lot of modern dietary advice. It's like, hey man, I used to eat the standard American diet and I went vegan and now I lost 40 pounds and I can lift a truck and I'm amazing. Yeah, That's great, dude. But that has nothing to do with anyone else on the planet earth because they are all different than you. So I'm really glad that you have this fire to help people. That's a good intention, right? Mm -hmm. And we all want to help, not all of us, but a lot of people want to help other people. And we also want to share positive experiences we've had in our life. But we also have the dude over here, Paul Saldino, who's like, hey, man, only eat meat, you know? And then we have- Oh, dude. Well, that's like the people who we talked about earlier, the athlete who starts coaching, that's like, here's what I did. Here's what I did. Here's what I did versus the the coaching experience. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I, it's the same line of thought, right? It's like, I went through this and it worked for me. So here, I want to help you. It'll work for yeah. you. Try this. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that intent. However, we also have to recognize that in offering someone that advice, we all have to eat a piece of humble pie and say, look, this worked for me. I'd like you to try it because you're struggling. And I can tell you're eating a standard American diet or whatever, or maybe you went vegan for two years and now you're, you're having chronic joint issues and you're having mm-hmm. a lot of problems. I also did that. And then I discovered steak again. And now look at me, I have way more energy. Maybe you might want to try it. Maybe it'll work for you. Maybe it won't. I don't know. That's the, always the caveat. So sorry, we got way off topic here because I'm blending many things. I mean, that actual example I love because one of my fitness inspirations is Tony Horton from P90X and he was vegan for like 15 years. And then Mm -hmm. one day his girlfriend made elk steaks and he said, he's like, I never considered not being vegan. He had gotten to the point where he was raw vegan and she made this elk steak. And he said that the smell turned him into like an animal is what he said. He be, he had this wild animal, like a uh, sensation to go and eat it. And he did. He's like, it was the best thing I've ever had. And wow. since doing it, he's felt the best yet. So that story was just ringing a bell. So I loved it. That's, um, that's great. I know. Yeah. Right. And so, <laughs> and so, yeah, it's also, it's like kind of condescending to say, but it's the person that means well is like that. It's kind of that phrase, like, you know, they mean well, but it's not great advice for everyone. Um, and the reels back into the saddle selection. I think that's cool to even think about the saddle more than just your ischial tuberosity width and also yes. really how you're sitting on it. And the way you described it, it's so funny. It, it reminded me of going like whiskey tasting or wine tasting or something like that, <laughs> where it is different. When you try things back mm-hmm. to back, that's when you can really tell the difference. If you yes. have all this time in between, it just like fades. And then mm-hmm. a lot of times too, like I noticed this, uh, I did a whiskey tasting at a buddy's house a few years back and you slowly get better, better whiskeys. You like get you know, more expensive bottles, things that you prefer. And by the time you get to the one that's the best, you're like, wow, this is really good. But like, I need to almost try the first one again to get that perspective back. And if you do, you're like, whoa, like I didn't even realize how good this was because I was like slowly, uh, like already adapting to it. So I feel like if you had a saddle too, where you, you feel like you got to one you really like, you need to put it to the side and then keep trying stuff just to reconfirm that that's the one, you know? So I, ha- I mean, this is one of the experiences that forged my ability to teach people about this whole journey. Um, I discovered SMP in about 2013. I started playing around with them and it took me a whole summer to get the right one and get it dialed and sort of figure out all the little adaptations. And I had come from physique's line of saddles. I raced the Arione for, I think, seven years. I raided the Olympic Games, you know? And if you'd asked me at the time, like, what saddles? Great. I would have been like, this one's awesome. And yeah. so it's a great example of you don't know what you don't know until you learn more. Mm. 
And so I rode that saddle for seven years. Then I started to, to fiddle a little bit. And I went to an Aliante, which in comparison to the Arion is a very curved saddle. But the Aliante has almost no curve in comparison to an SMP. An SMP is the most curved saddle on the market. That's why it's unique in that respect. Uh, they have a massive cutout and a massive curve. And so then I started playing with SMP in 2013. I raced on it all summer. And then I went on a trip in the fall to Puerto Rico. And I had at the time an older titanium race bike that was sort of my travel bike, right? It was a beater beater bike. So I said, okay, I'll take the tie bike down to Puerto Rico to do some riding. And I saw an Arion on it. And I thought, well, okay, this will be a chance to do exactly what we're talking about, like test it out and see. And so I went down there. I thought, I've ridden this saddle for seven years. You know, how bad could it be? I won't worry about putting an SMP on here. I got the bike out, built it up, went for my first ride. And 10 minutes into the first ride, I pulled over and my head was exploding. Like, <laughs> I was like, how the hell did I ride this thing for seven years? This is yes. terrible. It is a hatchet <laughs> now, right? It blew my mind. And yeah. that relative experience was so valuable to me because it taught me that I didn't know what I didn't know. And it really re define my scale of what could be comfortable. And I'll say your whiskey tasting analogy is perfect because it, it gives you the gradations uh, to figure out what's really good for you versus what's crappy. And sometimes we have to go back and remember the crappy stuff, the boxed wine or whatever to, to get the perspective. <laughs> yeah. um, but there's an added complication in the world of cycling. The complication is that for many years and still to this day, the culture of cycling does this thing where it puts all suffering in one box. And that box is HTFU good, right? And, and this is a thing in 2023 that we have learned to cleave, those of us who are paying attention and those of us who are bike fitters and many other as well, coaches ideally. We used to think all suffering was good. And so you finished a hundred mile ride 20 years ago and it didn't matter, you know, everything hurt. Your legs hurt because you rode a hundred miles. Your lungs hurt because you went hard. Your balls hurt because your saddle was not even close to the right saddle. Your knees hurt because your cleats were not even close to in the right place. Your feet hurt because your, your shoes were like two sizes too small and the toe box is shaped like an Italian dress shoe, right? And your neck and back hurt because your bars were slammed because that's what everyone did. And this was all in the same box of, and you didn't eat and you drank water and you were bonked out of your mind and your legs were shattered because you had no carbs in your system. It was all the same box. It was all Jocko Willink, HTFU, yeah. like just- Which, To clarify for people who don't know, HTFU is hard in the F up. Yes. And- uh, I just want to throw in that box that cheating or eating is cheating. Eating is cheating was a perfect one, right? You go, <laughs> you do a four hour ride with one bottle half filled with water. That nice. was it. And this was camel <laughs> mode was the mode. And we know so much better now. And I'll just explain why in case people still think that they need to go out and be David Goggins or Jocko Willink when they ride their bikes, you are, this is also incorrect. This is incorrect thinking. All humans have a limited capacity for suffering. It doesn't matter how Jocko Willink or Tim Schiff you are, or, or sorry, or uh, David Goggins you are. It doesn't matter how much of a badass you are. It doesn't matter how much you tell me that you're not that talented, but you're going to make up the difference in hard work, which you hear over and over again, right? Oh, yeah. Familiar story. So, like, cool, dude. I Go for it. Like, here's your thing. I, I'll, I'll avoid the sidetrack of the ego boost of why people say that. I'll just let people stew on it on their own. But when we're thinking about this box of suffering, right? And putting everything in that box, everyone has a limited capacity for suffering. Every human on earth has a limited capacity for suffering. And if you want to go as fast as you can for your half hour hill climb or your five hour road race or your 200 mile unbound or whatever, why would you cleave or partition some of your suffering towards poor equipment choices or shoes that are half size or size too small or poor nutrition choices? when you could put all of your ability to suffer in simply one thing, which is going as fast as possible. So it's completely illogical for you to ignore this, be this hard guy thing like, oh, it's a saddle. It doesn't really matter. You know, it's only my testicles. Like this is ridiculous thinking. <laughs> and if you're thinking that way, I challenge you to look at yourself honestly and reconsider your belief systems and stop being such a hard ass in areas that are needless. Like stop mm. trying so hard and trying the areas that matter, you know, not to be like Tim Ferriss or anything, but Work no, harder, work smarter, not harder. Said. It, it right? really needs to be said. And uh, I think we're going to have to have you back on. And we'll start the podcast by talking about why saying, I'm not talented, but I'll make up for it in hard work and how that's more of an ego boost. Because <clears throat> I'm with you 100% on that one. 
Uh, cool. And we, I know, I know if we crack the can, it's just going to go on. Um, and <laughs> yeah. so I'll yeah. cut it off there, but uh, Colby, I really want to cool. thank you for coming on the podcast, man. You have an insane amount of experience and it's awesome to see how you transitioned from your professional career uh, on the bike to helping, you know, coaches and athletes around the world uh, do their best work as well. So thanks again for your time. And I'd recommend anybody to go and follow Colby on Instagram. We'll make sure we have his, um, we'll have his credentials down in the description so you can link out to it. He also has a podcast and we'll make sure we link to everything on his website and through EF coaching, lots of areas to reach you. And is there anything you want to add before we go? No, I just want to say thanks a lot for the opportunity. It's been a great conversation. I appreciate it. And uh, thanks for all the things you do. Absolutely. Thanks, man. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong, but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about. And while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent, and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not to be clear to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings.